welcome everybody and uh, this is the new episode of ads talk where we discuss marketing voice marketing and voice technology in general and today's guest is the one and only dr robert cialdini whose foundational book influence is one of the most influential business and psychology books of all time if you've worked in marketing or sales or any role that has to do with strategic communications you're likely familiar with the Dr. Cialdini and his principle of persuasion. Since his last book, Influence, came out 30 years ago, um, his work has done nothing but influence new generation of those of us in the strategic persuasive communication space. And even if you haven't heard of the book, you've probably heard of his originally six persuasion principles. And Dr. Cialdini recently released a new, fully updated edition of Influence. In the new edition, he breaks down the seven universal principles of influence, adding the new one. If you haven't read it, I definitely suggest you read it. It's classic. And I remember when I was um, studying at my business school, um, they taught us um some principles from the book without maybe they mentioned the book but i maybe i didn't pay enough attention and i was uh so uh pleasantly surprised to learn that it's actually this one book that uh, everybody's talking about and i mean like all this uh research and case studies that the book has so you i'm sure all of you have heard what dr cialdini writes about maybe not everybody aware that that's actually his work so with big pleasure, I'd like to welcome Dr. Cialdini to our podcast. Welcome. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Stas. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. This is such an exciting opportunity for me personally and uh, for us at Instrumatic to have this uh, chance to talk to you because we started the company uh, and we pioneered uh, voice-enabled marketing. And voice-enabled marketing is all about having a two-way conversation with between brands and consumers. And when you can talk to a person, especially when you're in marketing, you have to know how to persuade them. So I got to be honest, we used, since the day one, <laughs> we used some of your work during our early uh, presentations and pitches because the first step for us was to present the value of a conversation to marketers. And uh, we used the famous beach towel story from your mm -hmm. book. And we used it a lot. We, <laughs> we know it really well because we repeated it so many times. And we, all, we, all, we even had a slide with, with a quote and said Dr. Cialdini's book. And uh, the fact that when people uh, say something out loud, the level of commitment goes way up. Um, so big thank you for your work. It's, uh, it's really fundamental. Um, and I, I wanted to start this podcast with, um, with hearing a couple more of this interesting studies that you did or that you, um, read about because, you know, they be become, uh, every time I hear them, they, they become like, like a story that you want to share with your colleagues, with your workers. So I'd really love to hear one or two of your most favorite ones. Studies that we've done uh, or that, you know, yeah. that I like my myself. Yeah, you know, like, there's a, like, go ahead. 
No, I just want to say like that one uh, example that I also like uh, from a friend of yours who uh, went to interviews and he started uh, each interview wow. by asking um, why you want to talk to me, why you want to interview me and right. how they changed the outcome. So that kind of stories, that kind of Sure. Story. If you're if you're ever in a biz in, in the position of uh, interviewing for a new position, uh, you will often find yourself in a room with an evaluator or a, a team of evaluators. And uh, typically what we're taught to say is, uh, well, I'd love to ask answer any of the questions you have for me. I'm very glad to be here. Feel welcome to ask any questions. That's the way it typically works. And I had an acquaintance who was using that strategy and was not successful at all. Uh, and then he decided to try something associated with the principle of commitment and consistency that says, if you can get people to take a step in your direction, a small step, they will then be congruent with it throughout the remainder of their exchange with you because they've made an active public commitment uh, in your direction. So what he does is to begin his um, uh his interviews by saying, you know, I want to answer all the questions you have, but I wonder if you could answer a question for me. Why did you invite me here today? And then he falls silent and he lets them describe all of the positive features of his resume, of his, uh, his background, of his experience that got them to bring him to the interview. And he says, it's remarkable. For the re remainder of the interview, they then keep saying things that are congruent with, they've, with what they've already stated about him. And they're the ones presenting all of the positive features of his, of, of his case. And he says he's gotten three better um, jobs in a row from using this strategy. So that's one thing it has to do with commitment and consistency. Here's another one. I had a um, an acquaintance, again, it's an acquaintance who called me and said, Bob, I wonder if you could help me with something. I'm a, a Boy Scout uh, leader and we try to get funds uh, for the my Boy Scout troop by arranging with supermarkets so that we're allowed to set up a table outside the doors so that when people come out, we can sell them popcorn uh, that will support our activities, right? And we've been having a very miserable success rate. Only about 15% of the time does anybody want to buy our popcorn. And, and I can see on the one hand why. They were just in a supermarket. If they wanted popcorn, they would have bought it there. And they've already expended their budget, right? Okay. Uh, but I asked him, so what do you say to people when they come out of the door? And the standard uh, uh, response, he said, is, well, we say, excuse me, would you like to buy some popcorn? It would support the Boy Scouts. Right? I asked him to change just the sequence, the order of those two statements, right? because do you want to buy some popcorn? People don't want to buy any popcorn. If they did, they would have already purchased some. The first statement now should be, excuse me, do you support the Boy Scouts? 
and he almost always gets a positive commitment. Yes, we do. And then he says, would you like to buy some of our popcorn? It would support our troop. Now he gets 55% purchase rate. And here's the best part of it. He says, some people say, I really don't want your popcorn, but I support the Boy Scouts, like I said. So here's some money for your troop. They don't even have to incur the expense of buying any new popcorn, right? So again, just changing the sequence of the way you ask the question engages, can engage this principle of commitment and consistency that lends itself to dramatic levels of success. This is amazing. I, we, we call these hacks, like how you can hack something, meaning change that would, so how you can change a minor detail that can lead to a significant change in the outcome. Um, can you think of another story? I just love them so much. Uh, maybe something, um, maybe uh, new work that you're doing right now and that, you, that you'd love to share. Well, maybe there is this, uh, you know, um, one thing that is a fundamental principle of social influence is social proof. The idea that if a lot of people are doing something, it's, it's the right thing for me to do. If I know that the multitude is behaving in a certain way, that means it's probably the right thing to do. It's adaptive to do that. It's probably uh, practical. I can do it. If, if those other people are doing it, it's feasible for me to do it. And if a lot of other people are doing something, I'll probably be approved if I do it. I won't be an outlier or some, some uh, you know, strange uh, uh, person on the peripheries. So um, social proof works great. Um, there was a, a study done in the UK that showed that a, a, a brewery that had a pub on its premises, one day they were asked by a researcher to put up a sign. It was true. It said, this week, our porter-style beer is the favorite of our visitors. Porter sales doubled. Right? So people following the social proof, what everybody else is doing. But here's the problem. What if you're in, what if you got a startup? You don't have a popular product. You don't have market share. You don't have a lot of sales. What you've got is a good idea at the beginning stages right? Um, or even if you've got a new product, some new model where you can't point to existing social, what do you do then? Um, so I off, so what I used to say to people is, well, then don't use social proof. Use one of the other principles. Use scarcity. You know, that's a good one. Uh, use uniqueness, uh, uncommon uh, features of what you have to offer. But I don't say that anymore now because of some new research we did that shows that if you have something new that doesn't have a lot of purchase, doesn't have a lot of market share, doesn't have a lot of support yet, but has a trend in that direction, 
All you need to do is describe the trend to that minority position. So if let's say you've only got 15% of the market, but you if you're if you can say six months ago, we had two percent. Three months ago, we had 10%. Today we have 15%. It's the same 15%. But now people are significantly like more likely to choose what you have because they project the trend into the future, right? All right. So uh, what we want to be sure of is when we are in a position of being able to honestly say, not just that more people are purchasing our product than before. That's not a trend, that's a difference. If we're able to say more and more people are purchasing our, our, our product or service. That's a significant upgrade in the psychological impact of what we can provide. And I'm not the only one who's done this research, by the way. Um, uh, people at Stanford, people in China, people in Germany, all have found the effects of, of, a, of a trend as opposed to a simple number of uh, evidence <clears throat> of some kind of support. Yeah. The, so it's social proof, it's but it's an interesting form of social proof. It's future social proof because people automatically extend the trend into the future. Right. Two days ago, it was just the two of us. Yesterday, five of us. Today, it's 10 of us, which means tomorrow we should expect it's going to be 20 of us. Yeah, I can see how it works. This is great. Um, uh, speaking of uh, social proof, it reminded me um, one of the studies that you talk about um, is, is how Chinese restaurants increased sales of specific meals by adding asterisks and saying like, this is not chef's favorite, nothing like that, but this is our most popular meal. And that reminded me of how uh, gaming companies use pretty much the, the same principle. I don't know if you're aware of it, but today many games are free to play, which means you don't need to uh, purchase them. You just install them and then you play them. And the way they make money is that they sell virtual goods within games, right? And when you open the market section, they always have, for example, five options to buy virtual coins. And there is always the most expensive one that they don't expect actually to sell, but they use the contrast principle here to have uh -huh. the, second, uh, the second most expensive one. And so like it's, it's less expensive than the most one. And they always show the most popular. This is what most right. players buy. So they they uh, they leverage two principles, which is social proof by saying, "Oh, this is our most popular one," and to and they use the contract the contrast yeah. principle to have even more expensive one. Right. That also proves that yes, I mean, if you put that the most expensive one is the most popular one, then it means nobody's gonna believe you. <laughs> but, right. Nobody's gonna believe you. Yeah. 
So that but there's an interesting uh, in, inside story having to do with that uh, Chinese restaurant uh, uh, study that you talked about where what they find is, of course, if you put a little asterisk next to certain items on the menu that says this is one of our most popular items, it becomes immediately more popular for its popularity, right? It 15, uh, excuse me, uh, 13 to 20% more popular for each item that they tried this with. But there's an interesting, if you look deeply into the study, it turns out that this worked for all demographic groups. It worked for young people, for older people, it worked for uh, families, it worked for single people coming to the store, it worked for uh, business people, it worked for neighborhood visitors and so on. But there was one group that outdistanced all of those, first time visitors. One thing that social proof does is reduces uncertainty among an audience in whether this is the right thing to do. Well, the people with the most uncertainty who had the least familiarity with the menu, they were using social proof the most of anybody. So for uh, your uh, uh, viewers, when you have a, a, a situation where things are unclear, uncertain, ambiguous, it's you have something new that's not widely uh, known, or uh, then use something like social proof, especially a trend, and you will diminish their, that uncertainty and get people to move in your direction. Yeah. Something tells me that those massive marketing successes that eventually became cultural phenomena, all of them, they, they all use probably all of the principles that you outlined. And I'd love if we can take one example. It could be how Bits created this movement with their headphones or how Apple uh, introduced iPhones or any of their products. Or any other example that you that you like to talk about and that, you know, everybody's familiar with. And Sure, everybody's familiar with the 1984. Yeah, and show how, yeah. how it followed yeah, all the persuasion principles. So everybody's familiar with the 1984 Apple Super Bowl commercial that introduced Apple as the differentiator from IBM and used this very uh, uh, dramatic image of faceless, uh, energyless people all together, right? Uh, hewing the, the standard line uh, and then came an attractive young woman running through this scene, right, carrying a sledgehammer and throwing it at that crashes the this the uh, screen that everybody's looking at, and the idea is be independent, be unique, right. It was essentially the scarcity principle. We have something that nobody else has. We have something that's new that won't be uh, available through the standard approaches of IBM or the other big uh, suppliers, we've, we're going to give you something unique in that situation, right? 
So that was the message that they were using, essentially the scarcity principle there and being unique and, un, and, and independent. Fast forward several years, Apple is now not the unknown new product. They've got all kinds of people in uh, their direction. Now they do want to use social proof. And if you remember the ad for that showed all the colors that are available for um, for Apple uh, phones, right? They have streams of people running together, crowding into the scene uh, and and showing the support of all of these individuals. Now, Apple is able to leverage social proof, not to fight against it with uh, scarcity, no, no, they, it's, it's not just stand away from the crowd or the, you know, it's, it's be part of the multitude, take the advice of the social. So they're very clever in the way that they use those principles, but they use them according to the situation they're in. And they highlight that principle that is there for them. It can be scarcity, uniqueness on the one hand, when they're brand new, but when they're established and have millions of followers, then social proof is appropriate for them. Yeah. Um, speaking of Apple, just a, a quick sidebar. So before we um, before we start recording this podcast, we sent out an email to our subscribers and followers and friends, actually announcing that you'll be one of our guests, and we offered them to share their voice feedback and voice questions. So since we're a voice tech company, we, uh, we promote using voice. And we received some questions for you. And I think this is one of the good moments to, uh, to ask one of such questions. Sure. So the question was, um, you write in your book that the harder it is to get something, the more valuable we perceive it and the more loyal we get. Man who suffered cannot believe he did it for a small purpose. And the question, is it, does it explain why some hard to use products become so sticky? And Apple can be a, a good example of a company. Who, I'm not talking about that they have bad products. I'm talking about the lines that people had to yes. day in to get a, a, an iPhone, especially like five, seven years ago. Some people spent days in those lines. Uh, in sleeping bags we, all night long. Yeah. Yeah, can we say that um, this was done on purpose or it just happened, yeah. but eventually people kind of suffered to get one and that led to them valuing the product even more? I'm convinced that that's the case. Um, and, and, uh, and they added to that both social proof, right? All these people in line and scarcity they were able to tie them together because there's only a limited number of these available so all of these people are lined up to get theirs before they they run out on the first day and there's a a great story from a my local tv station that went to interview people who were waiting in line and uh, they sent a reporter who interviewed the woman who was in number uh, 23 in line and uh said, so how was it to interact with uh, your colleagues here? And she said, well, we, we talked. And in fact, 
I was not originally number 23 in line. I was number 25. But I struck up a conversation with number 23, who admired my um, $2,800 Louis Vuitton shoulder bag. And she said, I immediately posed the following uh, uh, deal. I'll give you my shoulder bag for your place in line, right? To move from number 25 to number 23 for a $2,800 shoulder bag. And the reporter, who was a little taken aback, asked the right question, but why? And this woman said, because I didn't, because I heard this shop didn't have a lot of phones and I didn't want to lose the chance to get one. And loss is the, is the reason that scarcity works. Loss is the ultimate form of scarcity. It means you can't have it anymore. And the thing that drives that that drove that situation and that choice was the was the fear of losing out, right? FOMO, right? Which is essentially a scarcity principle. Yeah. Marketing was based on uh, two fundamental metrics. I mean, classical marketing, uh, reach and frequency, because marketing always leveraged uh, media, media channels that were available. Originally, it was print, then we had radio, then TV. Now we have internet. Internet offered uh, interactivity in the form of a click. Uh, but now the world is entering the voice era. We now begin to talk to our devices, and some of them even respond back. Which is which is which I find really interesting and exciting, and it seems to me that if a marketer, if a brand, can now have a conversation with a person, frequency can become redundant because then you don't need to repeat the same message. You can actually listen, adapt, and persuade by um, collecting that knowledge that actually people gave you when they responded, and. My question is, what is it about saying something out loud that drives a higher level of commitment in contrast to a silent response like to passive consumption and even comparing to a silent response in the form of a click? Yeah. And well, part of it is that we it's not just active, it's public and and active and public are our activators and amplifiers of a commitment right so if you're part of by saying something out loud you're more likely to uh, stay loyal to it right um, and there's plenty of research that shows that the more people can publicly and actively take a position on something the more uh, resistant they will be to change to something else to stay and and instead to stay consistent with it and i think what voice enabled technology provides is a, even something more and that is 
It's not just a one-time commitment. It is a synchronous exchange where a solution or a, a problem is addressed together with uh, the producer or the, the, uh, uh, the, the service provider, right? So that you are essentially co-creating that solution, that moment. You are working together in, as you would in an everyday human conversation. And this really has to do with that seventh principle of influence that I've added in the, in the new edition of Influence, the book, and that is unity. You feel more connected to and at one with that conversation partner. There's research that shows, for example, that back in the day before COVID, if in a negotiation, the negotiation partners began by shaking hands, they had a better outcome for both parties because they showed a connection, a unity uh, example or a, uh, a symbol of togetherness and uh, a shared purpose at the beginning. Well, I think voice-enabled um, uh, responding does uh, in, inside a, uh, an, an ad does the same thing. It provides this sense of togetherness, working together, co-creating the outcome of that uh, uh, of that exchange, which lends itself to greater influence as a consequence. I'm really curious. Does talking to a non-human has the same effect in terms of commitment principle? For example, if I'm talking to a dog, to a machine, does it drive the same level of commitment? You know, I think it gives you that first part of it, which is you are actively and publicly stating something, which drives up the sense of commitment. But I don't think we get unity there in the same regard, because that's not another person. That's some, that's some pre-programmed uh, automaton. But it gets you the power of commitment, I think. But not all of it, not not the whole package. Yeah. Um, let me give you an example of, uh, of a typical voice app. So imagine you're listening to, to an audio app. You, for example, you listen to, to a music app, a free version, not premium. So it means you, you, you have ads. And you hear something like this. Hey, this is your favorite coffee shop. How about uh, getting a hot cup of coffee when you arrive this morning? And you can say, yeah, I love that. All right, so this is what you need to do. Call us or get our app. Or you can say, no, I don't like coffee. Leave me alone. All right, sorry about that. We'll try harder next time. And then the brand can learn something from that interaction. And next time, instead of repeating the same ad again, the brand can say something like, hey, it's us again. For example, if you said, no, I don't like coffee. So you can be like, hey, it's us again. We know you don't like our coffee but we have amazing tea. Would you like to try our tea? And in a way, by being able to learn when somebody's not interested and why brand can uh, 
start developing a relationship and stay relevant instead of repeating the same ad again and again. And how do you think marketers that are investing money and time in voice marketing should think about applying the principles of persuasion when the brand can actually have this kind of a conversation with with the with people that can extend into time given that it's not a human interaction i think that's fine as long as that voice um from the provider is offering genuine uh opportunities uh, or features that uh, the, the recipient might be interested in. So if I'm listening to that conversation and my coffee shop says, hey, um, are you are you interested in having a cup, uh, a cup of uh, coffee uh, this morning? You could stop by and we can, uh, you know, we, we can provide whatever you want. And you say yes, all right? And, or you say no, and then as you suggest, Later, you get a, a couple of days later, you get, a, hi, um, I know you weren't interested in our coffee, but we have wonderful tea, right? That's an extension of the conversation. That, that what, that's not possible with just one that didn't use, didn't learn from the first one. So it really is a continuation of a conversation where you feel connected to that person in a unity kind of way. And here's something else that that voice could say. We have great uh, teas uh, available. Our most popular is the, um, is the Earl Grey, right? And now you've used social proof as well. And you could even use scarcity. Uh, you could say, you know, but uh, it's it's so popular that by noon it's it's usually gone. Right. So you can use any of those in that exchange. But the key differentiator is that it's part of a continuing conversation, not a, a set of one-off conversations that don't uh, connect to one another in some sort of um, Conti uh, 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 some some sort of a continuing way. How does a marketer create really influential dialogues at scale? Because the challenges that marketers have when they buy advertising is that they prefer to buy standardized. Um, advertising units because it's really hard to produce too many ads so they prefer to have let's say 30 second video app and then they spend millions of dollars distributed into as many people as possible then an audio ad radio ad uh, print ad and so in other words it's easier for them when it's a limited number of uh, they call it creatives advertising creatives and Given that limitation, how do you create influential dialogues at scale? When, you, when you're talking to millions of people, they're different. It's not the same group of people. And yet you have to come up with, um, with a standardized message. Well, this was really the problem that I tried to address when I wrote Influence. What are the things 
that work on everybody. What are the factors that are part of the human condition that lend themselves to assent, right? Uh, scarcity, social proof, authority, commitment and consistency, you know, these kinds of things that work for everybody. They're part of how we evolved. So those principles are going to be the ones that usually produce uh, a response in, if not everybody, the great majority of people, because that's how we, uh, that's how we developed as a species. You know, uh, when I wrote Influence, um, there was no internet, right? There was no e-commerce. Well, my, the book is often called the Bible of, it, of electronic commerce. How could that be? That if when I wrote it, it didn't exist, but now it's the Bible for how that process uh, works? People say, how could you look forward and see this that didn't exist then? And I always say, I didn't look forward. I looked inward. I looked at, I looked for the factors that have always moved members of our species toward ascent when they are confronted with those, princi those principles. And so I think that's the way to deal with it. The, the, the trick is in a lot of situations, uh, you can't really, uh, um, individualize if you you're you're sending your message out to many many people but i saw an article that showed that if you looked at um e-commerce sites one of the things that most led to a uh increase in conversions right was whether there was a welcoming letter when people entered the site, right? In other words, something just like what we do in, when we invite people into our home or into our business, we welcome them positively. We can do that. It doesn't have to be, oh, I like you because I like your shirt. You know, that wouldn't work. But something general, like a cordial welcome into the ad or the uh, the site that works. Yeah. Speaking of online marketing, um, many companies are asking people to leave reviews. And what I noticed is that uh, when people go online, they understand that uh, many other people may read what they review. And the, especially if it's a social network like Twitter or Facebook. And that usually leads to really, um, how should I put it, um, highly emotion-driven review, which is really short, usually really offensive. Why do you think this happens when people leave reviews in a public environment? Because I believe when they used to write them in the, like in the review book, it wasn't like that. It wasn't just profanity. Yeah. You know, I, here's how I suggest to people, uh, whenever you get a negative review, right? Mm -hmm. 
that actually certifies you as having all uh, not not manipulating the reviews so that they're all five star reviews uh, uh, but sometimes you get a negative one and what I what I always recommend is that you you respond to that review and you say we're sorry that you felt this way about our product or service we're so glad that as you can see from the rest of the reviews that the great majority of people do not have that experience you so you just shift away from this person and that emotional or uh, impetuous uh, negative review to the great majority of other people who have had a, a splendid experience you've just focused people away from that onto something in your behalf and then you say but of course we will take steps to try to make sure that your experience never happens again with any of our other uh, visitors right? so that's how you would deal with it you just move you you marginalize that review for what it is and focus people on what the great majority have said is there a difference in leaving review by writing and with voice? By writing it versus with voice? Once again, yeah, I think it's I, I think it's with voice, it's more uh, it, it's more committing. I, I do believe that there's more of you there than translating it through language uh, that you uh, have to write or in some way uh, provide. There's something about your own voice that reminds you uh, that this is from me. It's more representative of who I am. For that reason, I think it's probably more um, powerful. Yeah. Um, I guess this is going to be my final question. It's, it also uh, came in yesterday from uh, one of our uh, followers. And the question is, today, with influencer marketing being so popular, a lot of people are going by these vanity metrics, how many likes people have, how many views they have, and uh, how many followers they have. And a lot of influence isn't easily measured that way. There can be people who are extremely influential in their organizations in the world that are just not doing so in that public sense and more behind the scenes, and they could be way more influential than someone who's getting a lot of use out there. So what do you think is the definition of influence that can be most adapted to what matters and how people should look for influence when there is a disconnect between the visible manifestation of it and what's going on behind the scenes? Yeah, so by definition of influence is the ability to move people in a particular direction you know, in our direction without changing the features of what we have to offer. That's, that's something else. That's product design. Influence is moving people in our direction for the same set of features by how we present that information. Right? And the way I would uh, measure it is not in likes, it would be in purchases. It would be in votes. It would be in 
uh, clicks. It would be in something that was active um, that produced a, um, uh, an increase in the outcomes of the person who uh, was uh, trying to be influential. Yeah, that's great. At the end, I'm going to use the Detective Colombo principle, which is after you're done with the interview, ask a final question occasionally. Have, is there anything else that we, that we should tell to our audience today in, in, how, in terms of how they should be thinking about using influence principles at scale, given the advancement of technology that we're experiencing right now? Yeah, there's something that's been implicit in what we've been talking about, but I want to make it explicit, and that is the way to do this is ethically. That is, you don't fabricate or counterfeit or manufacture the claim for any of these principles, social proof or uniqueness or authority, voices, uh, and so on. No, you point to them. You only point to those things that exist inherently in your situation and you let you you release its power these are very powerful psychological dimensions you release them in your behalf and the consequence is that you are now informing people into assent you're never uh, pushing or pressuring or tricking them uh, in, into yes you are educating them into a, a choice that will work for them because of what is truly there in the situation. And that leads to long-term partnerships. That's great. Thank you very much, Bob. That was amazing. Um, to those of you who were watching this uh, or listening, if you have read the uh, original version of Influence, Go out and buy a new one because it has uh, new content, the seventh principle of influence, the unity. Um, it has a lot of new studies on online marketing, which is, which is where the trend is going. It, and especially if you haven't read it, go out and buy, buy, buy a book. It's, it's, it's game changing, especially if you're in sales and in marketing. Bob, thank you very much. Best of well, I have to say I enjoyed our interaction. Thank you. I appreciate it.